Hello, and welcome back to the Guidehouse Transportation Insights Podcast uh, for April 6th, 2022. I'm Sam Abu al uh, with Guidehouse Insights, and I'm joined today by our full team, including Christian Albertson, Ryan Citron, uh, Saji Ebenata, Joe Janata, and uh, after an absence of a few weeks, Scott Shepard. Scott, why don't we kick off with you this week? All right. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, so this week, uh, what I want to talk about is the GM-Honda partnership that was just announced yesterday. Uh, the, the goal of the partnership is to produce vehicles under the $30,000 price point. Um, and that's an important price point because it would put electric vehicles uh, pretty firmly in the cost-competitive zone at purchase cost with uh, internal combustion engine-powered vehicles or your conventional um, vehicles. Uh, and, and that price point has for the last 10 years really been seen as, or that cost competitive parity point has been seen as the thing that will really make EVs, uh, into the mass market, allow them to hit a hundred percent of the market potentially. Um, <clears throat> a few interesting things about the announcement are, uh, one, they're targeting it for 2027 and they're also talking about, uh, some, Partnerships around battery developments regarding solid state batteries, lithium metal, uh, as well as silicone. So some different chemistries. Um, so, so it's, it's, it's good to see this, you know, we've seen battery prices fall over the last 10 years and we've seen vehicle purchase costs, uh, for EVs fall as well. Um, but I'd say in the last two to three years, the, the price fall has not really progressed as significantly as it has in the prior five. Uh, a lot of that, I think, is, is tied to increasing vehicle range. And we've seen uh, vehicle range increase uh, pretty significantly for EVs going from around 80 to 100 miles of that first generation to around 150 to, to 250 miles of the second generation or more, uh, as there are many premium segment vehicles reaching 350 to 400 miles now. So, so getting to $30,000 is, uh, you know, is, it's going to take more investments in battery technologies. Uh, the battery developments that they mention, uh, specifically the solid state uh, mentions, I'm a little bit skeptical as to whether they can really deploy that in in a way that would have a significant impact on purchase costs by 2027 um but it's a rapidly uh evolving industry so uh so so there is potential there um a little while ago there was a a uh, basically an announcement about how toyota was planning to roll out solid state batteries in its vehicles and they were planning to to initially deploy solid state in hybrids without plugs um, so basically your, your standard hybrids like the, the Toyota Prius. Um, and the reason for doing that was to get some real world data out of the solid state battery, uh, in ugh, real world data out, um, regarding solid state batteries in terms of, uh, battery dur durability. Um, and they weren't expecting to introduce that until about 2025. So, Ultimately, I would expect that solid-state battery developments that that might enable some of these cost declines are from are are achieved around 2030 or later, and that uh, leading up to 2027, we're largely focused on the the conventional existing technologies 
and increasing scale, which is where I think this GM Honda partnership really comes into the fore in that they're, they're partnering to expand the scale of the Ultium battery platform. And that way, with increased scale, you can have uh, improved cost uh, savings from simply that increased scale. So uh, interested to know what uh, what everybody's thoughts on that are. I just had a quick question for you. Um, what are your thoughts on kind of the nature of these partnerships we're seeing in the EV space? You know, you have GM and Honda coming together. You know, U.S. and Japanese company. I know that Volkswagen and Ford kind of have a similar partnership going on. Um, is this pretty unique to the EV industry or on the internal combustion engine side? Did, did we see automakers like this kind of coming together to co-develop? vehicles or is this something that's pretty unique to EVs and, and this kind of new development? You know, uh, there are some uh, nuances to, to EVs, but it's it's definitely not unique uh, in the industry and historically speaking. Um, one of my first cars was, uh, one of my first, my first car was a, uh, what was it? Uh, a Chevy Prism, um, which was just a rebadged Toyota Corolla. Um, so that, that aspect of, of sharing vehicle powertrains and just, and, and vehicle designs and rebadging them is, is something that's been happening for a while. And I remember Sam, you wrote an article about, uh, uh, was it captive imports? Um, mm-hmm. so I figure you have a, have a good perspective on this too. I would just add that, um, with EVs, the nuance is, is specifically tied to the powertrain. And I think what we're starting to see now is that over the last 10 years, there have been a lot of investments and startups focused on the powertrain. And that's not necessarily developed by the automaker. And that development in the powertrain specifically could be deployed to a variety of vehicles as a skateboard platform, wherein the automaker is not necessarily in charge of the powertrain design, but they're more of the assembler. Um, so you would have this uh, sort of compartmentalization uh, of the powertrain that could apply to many uh, different vehicles. But yeah, I want to pause now and see, Sam, if you have a insight on on this. Yeah, um, I, I agree with what you're saying. And, and you mentioned, you know, captive imports, um, which was you know something that we started seeing in the 1980s when uh, domestic manufacturers like GM, Ford, and uh, and Chrysler were having difficulty uh, developing uh, a fo- more affordable and, and fuel-efficient vehicles to meet the, the then relatively new uh, corporate average fuel economy standards. And so they, they partnered with primarily with Japanese automakers to get rebadged versions of some of the Japanese small cars. Um, and, and you mentioned the, the Prism, you know, and, and GM and, and Toyota had a fairly long standing. It was more than 20 year joint venture, uh, that produced several different vehicles. The Prism, they were, I think the first one was the, they branched as the Nova, uh, you know, and then there was the Prism and then they had the, uh, um, there was a Pontiac, um, matrix. No, that was the Toyota was the matrix, uh, version of it, but there was a, a Pontiac, uh, small car based on that as well. So, um, you know, what we're seeing now, you know, is kind of a, as you said, a little bit different, really focused more on the powertrain. And because of the, the skateboard nature of these vehicles, um, you can take that, those common electrical and mechanical components underneath and put different bodies on top and, and really create something that looks 
far more distinct and unique than than some of those captive imports of the the 80s and 90s. Um, you know, give them distinct styling, uh, distinct user experiences, different um, different infotainment systems, and so they they can feel much more different from each other than some of those efforts in the past. Um, one one thing that I think will be really interesting to see about this. Uh, this extended partnership with GM and Honda, because they've been working together for nearly a decade now on fuel cells. And then GM is already planning to build two electric crossovers for Honda and Acura starting in 2024, based on the current generation Ultium platform. But I'll be, I'll be fascinated to see what they do for this next generation. Cause GM is launching, they've, they've announced uh, a $30,000 Chevy Equinox crossover um, for uh, launch in twenty in fall of twenty twenty three, um, and I was on the briefing call yesterday morning um, with GM and Honda, uh, listening to this, and you know they're they're targeting cars well under that price point for this twenty twenty seven program, and it'll be interesting to see if perhaps they adopt things like moving from a modular uh, battery pack design to a cell to pack or structural pack design that allows them to make it smaller and lighter. Uh, and reduce some costs out of there, or if they use, you know, what what different types of uh, cell chemistries they use to help them get down to that price point. All right. Uh, any other thoughts on the GM and Honda announcement from anybody? I, I just have a quick question. So um, <clears throat> on that um, that hopeful thirty k dollars price point, um, would that actually be undercutting? Do you think an equivalent ICE vehicle, or is it pr- just pretty much on par with them? Yeah, it. I'd say it's a little hard to say. Uh, vehicle prices have been going crazy lately, um, and inflation's been going crazy. So thinking about it in absolute terms is is probably a little bit fraught. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, I and Sam, I don't know. They didn't mention anything about necessarily it undercutting the price point. But the uh, the goal for the EV industry as a whole has been to basically not only become cost competitive, but become cheaper than than a turn combustion engine. Um, there's obviously a lot of different ways you can structure your your battery um, to achieve that price point. So it's yeah, I, I don't know how how confident I would be to say that it is going to be an undercut or not. I would more so assume that it's uh, achieving parity. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree. They're probably going for price parity. Um, you know, the, the impression I got from the conversation yesterday, and they were very, very light on details, you know, is that they're probably really targeting that low to mid twenty thousand dollar price point. So, you know, twenty two to twenty five thousand dollar price point, which is where you know where where a lot of you know the more um, entry level vehicles are today. Like today, you know, in the U.S. market, there's only a, f- a handful of vehicles that are under twenty thousand uh, dollars. You know, for a new vehicle, uh, for sticker price. You know, most of the um, the smaller crossovers like the Nissan Kicks, the Hyundai Venue, um, you know, the Hyundai Kona. Um, you know, they start right around twenty thousand dollars. And if you project out five years with the changes that are going to be required for emissions. Uh, compliance uh, and things like that; those are going to be creeping up, you know, into that twenty three, twenty four, twenty five thousand dollar price range. So, if they can do an EV 
you know, in that same price range in that time frame, I think they'll, you know, it'll, it'll be at least, you know, roughly at parity. And then when you factor in total cost of ownership, you know, the, the reduced um, fuel costs uh, and service costs, then, you know, overall, it'll actually work out to be cheaper. All right. Um, well, why don't we go with uh, Christian next? Okay. So uh, today I want to talk about Alphabet um, and their, which is the, the mother company of Google. They're a company called Wing. Uh, they're currently doing uh, drone deliveries over in Africa. Uh, so far this year, uh, they've done over 200,000 deliveries using these drones. Well, they're beginning their biggest test in the United States um, in Texas. So in a couple of suburbs in Texas, they're going to be delivering from, uh, let's see, it is Walgreens, uh, a couple other places, but they're going to be doing coffee. Um, if you need, you know, you know, Q-tips from, from Walgreens, you can order them and, and have a drone deliver it to your house. So what's interesting about this is the drones that they're using are a um, vertical takeoff and landing drone that, that transitions into a, into a forward flight drone. So it's got fixed wings, so it flies like a normal aircraft as soon as it gets to, to altitude. They fly at about 200 feet. Uh, they have software in them that basically allows the aircraft to fly beyond visual line of sight. So basically, they tell the aircraft, okay, here's the coordinates where we want you to go. Uh, the aircraft takes off with its package, flies to that coordinate, using the software on board to avoid trees, power lines, any other aircraft in the air and everything. And then flies to that point, and instead of landing to deliver the product, it has a, a cable that it drops the uh, drops down to the, the ground. As soon as it hits the ground, it releases the cable, it retracts the cable, and then become, uh, transitions back to forward flight and flies back to the, uh, the hub. Um, so it's it's uh, the hubs that, or the places they're going to be use, using this in is Frisco and Little Elm communities in near Dallas. Um, they're going to be, like I said, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with this, but this is going to be one of their tests in a larger area to see how these aircraft react and how the customers react to having drone delivery go on for probably normally these will go on for a year to two years, and then they'll start expanding out beyond those two uh, little suburbs. Um, one of the biggest problems they've had with these little drones, though, is noise. Uh, where they're flying now, it's actually Australia, not Africa. Um, they've had a lot of complaints about noise. Uh, so right now they're in the process of, of re-engineering the propellers on these uh, little drones so they don't make near as much noise. Uh, but it's really interesting. It's going to be great to see. Uh, Dallas is a great place to do it because, it, you know, it's not a very hilly area. Um, you've got a lot of wide open airspace in those areas to let these little, little guys fly around in. So, you know. Be ready if you want coffee from Starbucks. You should be able to order it by drone soon. So, Christian, the re-engineering of of the blades to reduce sound. Um, how difficult is that going to be? Is that it, it? It just sounds like these these things. I assume are already battery powered, so yeah. you have 
some uh, sound efficiencies already coming from the use of, of electricity. But um, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I guess, curious and a little bit skeptical about how, how much noise can be reduced. Well, it, it all depends on the shape of the blade itself. So a standard propeller, if you were to put it on a electric motor, yeah, you're going to hear a whining noise from the propeller. If you tweak your blade just a little bit, every time you tweak it, you're going to change the noise that it, it creates. The key is to get it so it, it produces as little sound as possible while producing the same amount of lift and thrust needed for these, these aircraft. Um, because they're using the, the way these are built, I believe it's got four uh, vertical propellers and then two that use that they use for forward propulsion. So they don't transition. Um, the thing about it is, is they still have to be small enough where it, it doesn't change the, the flying um, characteristics of the aircraft, doesn't change the size of the aircraft, but it has to be powerful enough provide enough thrust. So um, that's what a lot of people don't realize is like on a helicopter, what you're actually hearing most is the ends of the blade of the, the blades on that propeller make the most noise and the tail rotor makes more noise than anything else. Hmm. So by changing the shape of them, there's um, if you look at the, We'll go back to the military side. The AH-64 Apache, if you look at its pr a blade, the end of the blades have a kind of a, a, a hook to them. And it kind of bends at the very end. That there was enough to quiet down the helicopter. So that's the kind of thing that they're going to be looking at is how can they, they change the shape of that blade where it still produces the same amount of thrust but is quieter. Then... After that, then you have to manufacture enough of them to roll them out to every drone that they have out there, which if they're doing 200,000 in the first part of the year, that's quite a few drones that they're using. Hey, Christian, does each drone um, deliver kind of like one thing at a time or does it take multiple packages and make multiple stops before it returns to base to recharge, do you know? These are set up as, as a single drop per, per uh, mission. Um, okay. Basically, it looks, it's about the size of, uh, from what, what I can see until they're about a foot by about eight inches package. Yeah. Um, about, about six to eight inches tall. And they, they look like a, um, a small lunchbox, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was wondering, because the article you sent is talking about delivering ice cream. And I'm thinking, you know, if it's making three stops before it gets to me, how, how <laughs> melted is this ice cream by the time? Yeah, ho hopefully the ice cream is the first stop they make. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's usually just just one one stop per flight. Yeah. What's, um, what's the range and payload capability of these wing drones? The, uh, these, the, from what I can tell on these, if I remember correctly on wing, you're talking about a, they got a 10 to 15 mile radius that they can fly. No problem. The, um, that's it, about a two and a half to five pounds on, on this size of drone is, is what they can they deliver per time. And the reason you want to keep that, you know, as soon as you start going to a 10 pound, uh, delivery, your drone has to increase in size accordingly. Uh, so these are very small drones. It's not meant for, it probably won't take a gallon of milk. 
You know, right. you're talking about seven to eight pounds there for a gallon of milk versus, you know, like I said earlier, you know, some Q-tips and a bar of soap is going to be the type of stuff you're going to do. You're not going to um, take it, use it for any heavy loads. You're not going to use it for sodas. You're not going to use it for that unless you have one soda and a sandwich type thing. Okay. Um, I guess um, I'm just wondering about the, you know, with, with such small payloads, you know, um, it seems like maybe for, for things like delivering um, prescriptions from a pharmacy, it would make it might make sense, you know, if someone is at home sick uh, and they can't can't go out, you know, a, a prescription is usually pretty lightweight. You know, it, that, that's the kind of application where it makes sense. Things like groceries, you know, unless you're really desperate for a pint of ice cream and you just don't want to go out <laughs> for it. Um, it. I'm not it doesn't I'm not sure how necessarily um, economically viable you know, or commercially viable this might be. Did, yeah. um, has Alphabet gotten um where do we stand with FAA regulations for this right now? Have they gotten F some FAA waiver or something like this? Yeah, FAA has approved this. They actually started asking for permission for this last year. Uh, FAA has approved it, and they're actually supposed to start this um, like tomorrow. Hmm. You know, they're supposed to start it very soon. So, and and originally these this size of drone and this class of drone um, was was purpose made for just that, for those emergency kits, for, uh, you know, first aid, your medications, things like that. Yes, that's what they're there for. Um, here in the U.S., you know, they're going to be used for a little bit more than that. Everybody's going to be trying to, you know, how soon can we get a pizza on this thing? And they've actually, some, some companies have already delivered pizzas using drones. Uh, but this is a full-scale test. So it's going to be, you know, a fairly decent sized facility. They're going to be working with these companies. Some uh, Walgreens, I believe, was, was the one in there. And if you order it from Walgreens, Walgreens will basically walk the package over to the facility. They'll load it into the into the, the drone, program the drone and push play. The drone will take care of the rest on its own. So is Alphabet setting up uh, depots where they're going to operate these from that are going to yeah. be adjacent to the the retailers that are using them? Yes, yeah, they'll they'll do that. Or um, in some case studies I've seen, they've actually set up a runner that basically says, "Okay, go down, you know, the store's two blocks down, go pick that up, bring it back, so we can put it on the drone." Um, one of the uh, the companies is that's doing the the drones actually set up outside of a Walmart and they deliver for Walmart. So this most likely this, uh, this one here, they're probably going to set up right next to a Walgreens or right next to, you know, one of these larger stores they are going to be uh, delivering from. And when they allow you to, to do this, they don't allow you to buy anything in the store. They give you a limited, you know, because of the weight, because of the size, these are the things that will fit and they'll go from there. And yeah. so you you can use these you can order these items anything else you have to come in. All right, uh, let's go to Saji then. Hi guys, um, so I thought I'd like to talk about um, UPS and their, their recent recent announcement of uh, deploying a fleet of um, e cargo bikes um, in the UK in, in London. Um, so um, UPS, they're, they're, they they um, they. Um, They've announced that um, they're going to be using a, a fleet of 100 um, e-cargo bikes, um, what they call e-quads. 
um, to, to be making uh, last mile deliveries in, in London. Um, I think this is part of a bigger plan to try and roll these out in other European cities. Um, and the, I think there's also mention of um, also um, trialing these in the US and, uh, and Asia as well. So, um, you know, one of the, the key benefits for e-cargo bikes that's really seen that, that, that increased, uh, increased usage um, in, in, in Europe in particular um, is their compact uh, format. So that allows them to use cycle lanes, um, which, which is, which is um, a big advantage um, for maneuvering in cities um, and also potentially using uh, pavement, pavements or sidewalks or, or other, other paths which are mainly for um, p- pedestrians. Um, so, um, so yeah, London is, is probably an, an ideal city for, for trialing this um, with lots of narrow streets and, and um, yeah, yeah, very small paths. Um, and the vehicle itself, um, it's, it's around um, 90 centimetres in width, which is about 36 inches, I believe, um, which enables it to, to, to be used in, in pedestrian zones. Um, so at the moment, um, when accessing these pedestrianised zones, um, delivery drivers would need to, to park their vehicles outside of the, the restricted area and then um, yeah, use some kind of um, a cart or, or, or other wheeled uh, contraption to, to, to take the, uh, to make that final step of the journey. Um, so yeah, but there's, there's an increase in um, pedestrianised zones in, in, in Europe in particular, but also uh, increasing restrictions on, on, on vehicle usage. Um, and you know, e-cargo bikes, um, you know, obviously a lot quieter, have uh, no um, tailpipe emissions and um, uh, are, are favourable in terms of, of moving with congestion without adding to it too much. Um, what's unusual here is is that um, they're using the, what they call the e-quads, which are the four-wheeled um, e-cargo bikes. Um, so those aren't so um, established compared to, to the regular e-cargo bikes, which are typically three-wheeled. Um, but they do provide certain benefits, um, especially in, in a climate, in, in a European climate. Um, so, so firstly, um, they have a cabin in which the, the, the rider or driver can, can sit in. So that um, it protects the, um, the driver from rain and, 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 and bad weather. Um, and that's one of the one of the, the key, it's, it's been seen as one of the key um, disadvantages for, for for cycle usage, especially for for business commercial deliveries. Um, so so that's one of the, the main advantages. Um, secondly, of course, it has a, a much larger cargo capacity um, compared with an e-cargo bike. Um, and um, also, I'd say that probably you know have, having that uh, that cabin. Um, I guess provides the rider with a bit more assurance of, of, of safety um, in, in the vehicle. Um, so the, the vehicle itself, the, the e-quad, um, so in, in width, as I said, it, it's, um, it's around 90 centimetres in width um, and it's under two metres in, in height uh, and, and somewhere around uh, three metres in length. So it's, it's pretty small and compact, um, but it can carry a, a payload of around 200 kilograms um, in a secure um, con- container. Um, and it has a range, an electric range of around uh, 60 kilometers uh, with a top speed of around 15 miles an hour, which is you know, similar to that of a, of a regular pedal cycle. Um, because of its, um, I guess, configuration, it's, it's, um, it's aligned with the European regulations, which apply to e-bikes, um, the, the typical three to four wheeled, so three wheeled e-cargo bikes. Um, but it means that the, the, the driver of the, of the e-cargo bike has to actually be pedaling, um, which may look a bit unusual in that type of vehicle. But um, 
There is obviously um, electrical assist um, just to reduce the, the amount of effort uh, required. Um, the manufacturer of these uh, e-cargo bikes is uh, Fernhay, so they're a British engineering design company, um, and they've been up to now been uh, designing these um, um, portable containers uh, suitable for for uh, towing by bicycles and other micro mobility modes. Um, and they've also got something called an e-walker, which is essentially a, um, a, a, cont- a small container about the same size as that on the uh, e-cargo bike, but it's it's power to enable somebody to, to easily maneuver it um, through you know, through narrow streets uh, and on pavements um, in Europe. Um, DH, uh, so UPS, I think they did mention that um, they are working with other manufacturers uh, of uh, these these quad e-quads. Um, it's, it's not mentioned who, but um, in the UK, uh, the, the, probably the, the most established manufacturer is called EAV. Um, so they've already, to date, they've been working um, and, and been um, supporting pilots for, for the likes of Amazon, um, DPD, DHL, and some of the major UK supermarkets. Um, and also uh, CTQ, which is a Norwegian-based uh, startup um, who have a similar, a similar concept, um, although it hasn't really have too much of a presence um, outside of uh, Norway at, at this moment. Um, so I, th- I think this is yeah, part, part of a, a trend of the logistics companies looking to, to, to experiment with micromobility, um, with e-cargo bikes, and we've seen FedEx and, and uh, uh, DPD, for example, do, doing this. Um, but, um, but I think it would be interesting to see of, of, you know, if you know, the, the benefits of, of these uh, four-wheelers uh, four-wheeled uh, e-cargo bikes uh, catch on in Europe and, and potentially further afield. So just to clarify, the the delivery person does actually have to pedal this device, right? It, it, yeah. So it's uh, electric-assisted pedaling, right? Correct, yeah. So that's pretty much the same regulation for e-bikes in, in Europe, that um, you can't have like just throttle-operated bikes. Um, you need to have some kind of, of assist to the, to, the, to the pedaling action of the rider. So, uh, are, will these things be allowed to operate, for example, in bike lanes, or do they have to operate um, on the, the regular traffic lanes of a street? Yeah, they're they're, they're allowed to ride on bike lanes, um, as are normal e-cargo bikes, and um, and maybe it's a bit of a, of a gray area, but um, it's expected that they would also use pavements uh, or sort of sidewalks. Um, although th- there may be slight differences in the regulations in the different uh, European markets. And when are they going to start deploying these? Um, I think fairly shortly. Um, I don't have a precise date, but um, I, I, I think, um, you know, based on uh, EAV, for example, that they're already piloting these um, these types of e-quad vehicles um, in London and in the UK. Um, so I, I imagine it being very imminent. It's pretty cool. I mean, it, lo- it looks like a, just like a little regular brown UPS van, but just a tiny version of it. Uh, exactly, yeah. yeah. And it's very narrow if, if you look at it from, yeah. from head on. Yeah. Saji, right. how much of the last mile delivery market do you think these types of vehicles could be deployed to? Because I'm imagining Deliveroo and, you know, the, uh, the bike riders for Deliveroo using their own bikes and, and their own mobility devices to yeah. provide services there. And I don't really see this as, as making a splash there because the, the Deliveroo drivers would have to, you know, basically purchase this for that and 
that yeah. makes sense. So is it only really going to be for, well, my assumption is that it's, it's probably best designed for parcel delivery services like UPS, but yeah, that's the extent. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's probably more practical for the, you know, the big logistics companies um, or other, other, um, other delivery companies who are, do, who are doing last mile delivery, perhaps on the behalf of the lo- bigger logistics companies. Um, but also um, supermarkets. I think that's probably um, a, a key um, area for them, um, delivery of, of groceries. Um, as you said, people like, like Deliveroo, um, they tend to use e-bikes um, and their, their own, they, they buy out of their own pockets, their, their own personal uh, vehicles. So, um, yeah, this is probably a bit, yeah, for, yeah firstly, yeah, it's probably too big for, for the types of deliveries they're making, but also it's probably a bit too costly and probably too cumbersome for their day-to-day personal usage. Um, yeah, these vehicles, on the one hand, to me, seem to make a lot of sense for last mile delivery and you know, more flexible in cities, no emissions, all that kind of stuff. I get it. But I, I see a real concern when it comes to safety, allowing these things in bike lanes. You know, you're looking at it and, you know, like I said, it kind of looks just like a, a full vehicle. It's a you know, four wheeler. It's, uh, as you mentioned, 210 kilogram capacity for our American friends. It's 460 pounds that it can take. And that's without the weight of the actual vehicle. You know, if that hits into a bicyclist, you're talking minimum of like a 600-pound vehicle hitting someone. Um, to me, looking at a picture of it in a bike lane just looks wrong. <laughs> I just I, I would not want to see that myself riding a, a bicycle. So what are your thoughts on, on the safety factors here and how heavy these vehicles can be? And, you know, hitting into a bicyclist with this is much different than, you know, a bike-on-bike collision. Yeah, I think I think that's a very valid point. Um, especially, I think in particular, if they're if they're riding on um, uh, sidewalks, for example, where they're, where they're, where or other paths or pedestrianised streets where the, the road is shared with um, pedestrians, I, I see that as being a risk. Um, at the moment, um, at least in the UK, there isn't um, a specific additional regulation for something of this size, just because it falls into the category of an e-cargo bike or e-bike. Um, I think the I think the, the the weight, the curb weight of the vehicle itself uh, is not that high. I think it's it's um, it's below around seventy to eighty kilos. Um, um, but um, I think that you know, if obviously um, if these do start to proliferate, um, I, I can imagine you know policymakers starting to clamp down on you know, irresponsible usage uh, of these vehicles. Um, but um, yeah, in, in, in terms of legislation, they are yeah that they are actually permitted to, to ride on on the, on the roads and use p- uh, bike paths and cycle lanes. Yeah, I thought I heard you say sidewalks. I do hope these aren't going to be <laughs> driving on sidewalks. I, that's yeah, really it's a bit of a gray area. Bike lanes, I think. Yeah, it's 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 a bit of a gray area because um, yeah, at least in the UK, um, you can you can you can find uh, bikes on on just regular pedal bikes on pavement as well as e-bikes um e-cargo bikes technically would fall into that category but even e regular three-wheeled e-cargo bikes are still pretty big in comparison to a <laughs> to, to a normal bike and I, I think just out of responsibility delivery drivers don't tend to do that um, unless it's just just wheeling the vehicle to to where it's being parked or, or to where the, the delivery is being made um but perhaps on pedestrianised streets, um, where streets t- tend to be quite wide, um, I, c- I can imagine I can imagine them just like bicycles, just 
uh, being ridden around, but probably at low speed, um, just being a bit more uh, courteous and considerate, considerate of um, pedestrians. But of course, yeah, it just takes a few irresponsible riders for, for a clampdown on, on this type of activity. Yeah, and I was going to mention the width, even though it's it's thin at 90 centimeters, that's still double the width of a road bike and about a third more than a than a mountain bike. So that it, it, it doesn't take up a lot of space, but that's still, you know, a pretty big increase. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's a big you know, cuboid mass to, to potentially collide with a, a pedestrian. Yeah, it's it's you know three meters long, so <clears throat> that's you know it, it's a pretty good sized vehicle. Yeah, hmm. yeah. Have, have they given you any indication of what these are going to cost? No, um, no. So so um, UPS hasn't. Um, I know that um, EAV um, have have these in operation um, at the moment. I I don't think they've published um, pricing. At the moment, but um, I think um, that um, I, I imagine them to be a bit, bit more expensive than, than high-end e-cargo bikes, which which could be anything up to about five to six thousand pa- uh, pounds UK pounds. So um, I, I can imagine it being yeah probably around the eight thousand dollar mark would be would be my my guess. All right, thanks, Christian. Bye. Cheers. Um, yeah, so one, one more just follow up on that because I did do a quick Google. Um, it looks like standard e-bikes in the UK have to weigh 30 kilograms or less. So you're saying that the curb weight is even just without it being full of packages is still 70 kilograms and, and with yeah. uh, packages could be up to 210. So is yeah. there like was there an exception made in, in the rules for these kind of vehicles or? Um, I'm not sure, to be honest, uh, right? Yeah. Um, I think that's for um, for. for and, and maybe it's a gray area. Um, so, for example, with e-cargo bikes, so th- those could potentially be approaching that 30 kilo um, curb weight, uh, I can imagine. Um, and also potentially also with heavy uh, payloads on the, on the vehicles as well. Um, and, yeah, th- those are t- typically um, considered just in the same category as, um, yeah, regular e-bikes. Yeah, there may be some exception for more like commercial e-bikes or something like that yeah yeah i can look into that um but yeah that, that's 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 a, a very good and, and valid point cool. all right um well let's jump over to joe joe what's uh, what's going on in your area um so i came across an article about the uk government's new hydrogen uh plan so in 2021 um they released a 10-point green industrial revolution plan aimed at cutting emissions and creating greater energy independence um, with their post-Brexit existence. It was their energy solution for uh, renewables and post-EU membership. Um, it included a plan to generate 5 gigawatt of low-carbon hydrogen capacity by 2030, um, and it was primarily aimed at replacing natural gas, powering around 3 million homes, and only mentioned transportation as a secondary potential use case for the hydrogen. This left a pretty big void um, in the necessary investment if they eventually wanted to do um, hydrogen as a fuel source for vehicles. Um, At the same time, they continued to invest in battery electric vehicle charging and pretty significantly. In the past several weeks, though, they have doubled that hydrogen commitment 
um, from 5 gigawatts to 10 gigawatts of production capacity and included uh, a lot of language about transportation. There was a handful of examples of fuel cell passenger cars across the UK, uh, but the government and this plan seems primarily focused on converting public bus fleets, trucking, and off-road industrial vehicles to fuel cell technology. The lack of government support for the fuel cell passenger cars seems to be largely in line with a lot of the global trends, um, as most people have opted for battery electric vehicles in the passenger car space rather than fuel cells. Uh, but they their firm commitment to fuel cells and heavy-duty vehicles is a little bit bolder than a lot of other countries. They have really locked into the merits of fuel cells over over battery electric vehicles in industrial and heavy duty spaces, while other countries are still debating the merits of the two. Um, there is very limited refueling infrastructure for hydrogen right now. There's actually only 14 stations in all of the UK, and there's a relatively growing and established um, electric vehicle charging infrastructure. So it makes sense to focus on the heavy duty vehicles where they can cluster fueling stations um, around bus hubs and truck stops and other industrial centers. Uh, it should be interesting to see how fuel cell vehicles work out because it's hasn't been widely adopted yet. Um, and future adoption cases, there's obviously a lot of ways they can use fuel cells. So it should be interesting to see how it shakes out. Yeah, was there, um, uh, so you, you mentioned um, sort of a green, blue hydrogen, and uh, I guess on the production side of hydrogen, did they provide any context about how they're going to get more production capacity developed? Because uh, right now, a lot of hydrogen is not blue and it's not, it's not green. Uh, so, yeah. So they're... Their blue is, um, it seems to be relatively scaled up. Um, they have a decent amount in that space, and they hope to be almost entirely green by 2030. That seems like a pretty lofty goal, uh, so it should be interesting to see. But there wasn't a ton of uh, language around that, just that they hope to be gr green and blue one day, and right now using the less clean yeah, sources. Yeah, and there, there's a lot of momentum around that, uh, specifically in Europe. Um, we see a lot of countries, you know, uh, having strategies for both developing blue and, and green hydrogen and, and looking for a mix of, of both to be heavily present by, by 2030. Um, the, I find the, it, it's interesting, uh, the, the debate around which alternative fuel technology electric or, or hydrogen is really going to be the, the solution for, for heavy duty vehicles. Cause that's, it's, it's a big unknown. Um, and, and I always look at it from the perspective of, uh, you know, which technology is going to get there first. Um, and, and it's hard to say, uh, I, I think, and, uh, it's going to be a big question mark for a while. Um, because there's, sorry, I think the, yeah. yeah, I think the UK, it's a more interesting debate because they have a issue around energy supply, especially with sanctions around Russia um, right now. So I think they are seeing grid issues already arising with uh, the increase in battery electric vehicles. So I think by con 
kind of pushing the fuel cells for more industrial vehicles and heavy duty vehicles, taking some of that pressure off the um, electrical grid that yeah, uh, it, passenger cars it, would be It's strange driving. though, because both for blue hydrogen, you're using natural gas. And for green hydrogen, you're using electricity and you're using renewable electricity. And when you're, when you're doing both of those, you're actually increasing your consumption of either. So you need more resources for either natural gas or for renewable electricity. So um, the, the difference is you just increased your, your storage capacity for those two fuels in that, you know, with, with heavy duty electric trucks, you're going to move from having something that would be peaky with, with heavy duty electric trucks to something that's a little more um, uh, storable. So you, you're not going to have so much peaky and have more of a constant supply or, or constant demand stream for it. Um, so yeah, it, it's interesting. The, the situation in Russia definitely highlights a, quite a few different problems that are going to hit the uh, energy generation and production uh, side of the industry, specifically in the UK uh, over the, the next few years. Um, Joe, you mentioned um, that uh, part of the original plan here was also to replace natural gas uh, for residential use. Um, And as as part of that effort, you know, would would they be uh, using the pipelines, using the same pipelines to distribute the hydrogen Um, and doing that was, was the plan to distribute pure hydrogen or to blend it with natural gas in the pipelines? Um, I My understanding is pure hydrogen. Um, I'm not sure if they'll be using the same pipelines. I think that depends on the case. Um, I didn't see a ton of language around that. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, let's uh, jump into the last story for this week, um, which is about uh, the transition from internal combustion to electric vehicles. Um, there was a, um, a column published in uh, the National Post in Canada yesterday uh, or two days ago um, that uh, basically took the, uh, the government, the federal government in Canada to task. Uh, the title was The Unintended Consequences of the Trudeau Government Banning Gas-Powered Cars by 2035. Um, and the, the, the subhead was uh, expect used car prices to go way up for one. Um, the, the premise here, you know, with this article, and I think, you know, there's certainly some legitimate concerns around this. You know, a lot of regions are looking at, banning sales of new internal combustion vehicles. Um, Norway, for example, I think is the most aggressive. They're planning to ban those sales by 2025, but they're already at 80% BEV penetration in Norway. Um, other company countries like uh, the UK and the Netherlands, I think, are looking at 2030. Here in the US, uh, Washington State has talked about 2030. Uh, Canada has, has said they want to ban new ICE sales by, by 2035, uh, which is an aggressive, but probably not totally unreasonable goal. Um, you know, especially if if the focus there is at least on personal use vehicles as opposed to commercial vehicles, where you know hitting that target in that time frame um, might be might be a little unrealistic. But you know, one of the one of the challenges, of course, is, is you ban sales of new ICE vehicles um, in favor of uh, of BEVs. 
um, that some people may decide, well, they want to keep driving ICEs. And, you know, the, the expectation is that this is, uh, you're going to start seeing hoarding of ICEs. And the, the author of this, uh, this column uh, gives the example of Cuba uh, when following the Cuban revolution, um, they weren't able to import uh, new vehicles anymore because of the, uh, the embargo that was placed on Cuba. Uh, and as a result, we saw 1950s era American cars being continued to be maintained and, and operated in Cuba well into the early 2000s. Uh, on a regular basis. In fact, I guess there, there's still many of them on the road today. Um, and, you know, the, this, this author, uh, Tristan Hopper, uh, you know, says, you know, could see the same thing going on, which would, you know, negate the, the benefit of an ICE ban uh, and drive up prices because of limited availability. And I, I'm, I'm kind of skeptical of that argument. Um, you know, the, there's a fundamental difference with what happened in Cuba versus what's happening everywhere else. And that, you know, in Cuba, when they banned, you know, when they banned uh, trade with Cuba, um, there was no new product coming into Cuba to replace those existing vehicles. Um, you know, with ICE bans, there will be, you know, available products to replace those ICE vehicles. Just as, you know, over the last decade we've seen, or the last couple of decades, we've seen transitions from incandescent bulbs to compact fluorescents and now more recently to LEDs. You know, there, there, there has been something to replace them with. And the price of each of those new technologies has come down substantially. Um, and, you know, we're seeing reductions in prices for EVs, they will get more affordable. ICEs are inherently going to get more expensive over the next uh, decade as emission standards continue to climb. Um, and, you know, there will probably be some people that want to continue using their ICEs um, well into the 2030s and beyond. And we have a very, we have a much larger fleet of ICEs today than Cuba had in 1959. Uh, you know, here in the U.S., you know, it's it's close to 290 million registered vehicles on the road. Um, so th- those will undoubtedly be in in many in use. Many of those will be in use for many decades to come. Uh, but I think that the you know, um, scare tactics about uh, you know about what's going to happen if we ban sales of new ICEs um, are probably a bit off the mark. Um, you know, relative to, to what's actually likely to happen. Um, any thoughts on this, guys? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, my take would be yeah, the comparisons to Cuba are, are ridiculous. I wouldn't even really talk about that. Um, it sounds like the author is kind of making these judgments almost with the assumption that EVs in 2035, in terms of what's available, the specs of the vehicles, the capabilities of the vehicles are, will be what they are today. Um, my sense is by 2035, there will be very few people that actually want to buy an ICE vehicle based on how much better EVs will be. Uh, when you look at the, you know, the deployment roadmaps of all these automakers are really refocusing their, their money into EVs to, to make them really compelling, high, higher performance uh, vehicles. There's also a really interesting study that just came out from Clean Energy Canada, which is a nonprofit here. It's called the True Cost, and it compares the price of EVs to, to gas cars today. And it found that um, every single electric version of every car 
that was analyzed was cheaper over the total cost of ownership today than the gas equivalent. So you, if you look at, for example, the, the Hyundai Kona electric, which is the um, most second best selling EV in Canada after the Tesla Model, Model 3, it's $15,000 cheaper to own this vehicle than the gas powered Kona over the lifespan. So even though the electric version costs $46,000 uh, to buy and the gas version costs $24,000, over the total, um, the total ownership cost is only 56 for the electric Kona and 71 for the gas Kona. So even though those upfront purchase prices are, are quite different still, the total cost is much cheaper. And that assumes an eight-year ownership uh, driving 20,000 kilometers a year. Um, so really the key here is gas prices too. So, I mean, the, the model assumes $1.35 per liter in gas, which is about $5 a gallon. U.S. for gas, so that's maybe expensive in the U.S. relatively, but uh, $1.35 per liter in Canada is not that expensive. And here in B.C., we've been seeing uh, $2 per liter come up with, with the latest spike in gas prices. So, you know, the, the analysis shows that right now the electric cone is $15,000 cheaper to own than the gas-powered version with $1.35 a liter gas. If gas prices were to average $2 a liter, as we've been seeing lately, the electric car would be $24,000 cheaper to own than the gas-powered one. So the idea that in you know, 2035, there are going to be drastically better vehicles and, and you know, if they're the same price up front and much cheaper to operate, it's just a, a picture, I think, that the author is painting in a pretty unrealistic way. Yeah. Yeah, and I would add to that, I mean, you know, besides cost, there's also the, the challenge of infrastructure um, for, for EVs right now that I think a devil's advocate would, would come back at you and say, well, what if you can't charge it up or, or whatever? Yeah. And I think even to that point, you, you would probably respond that once again, the technologies that are available in 2035 are going to look so much different than they are today that, um, <clears throat> that if, if you're basing your perspective on infrastructure that's available today, you're, you're completely off on, on whatever assumption you're making. Um, simply put, there are just so many innovations happening in the sector that that your that your prediction would need to account for. Um, so so yeah, it, it just seems a bit silly. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, to to what you're to follow up on what you're saying, Scott, about infrastructure. You know, the the author of this piece um, references you know that there are about sixty eight hundred charging stations, public charging stations, in um, in Canada right now, uh, which is uh, quite a bit less you know on a, on a proportional level relative to the population than we have here in the U.S. Um, you know, is well over well over a hundred thousand now in the u.s um but and and canada you know is com even compared to the u.s is even you know uh, more vast you know in terms of some of the distances across the middle part of the country uh but uh i think you know if government policies you know do uh provide incentives to help build out that infrastructure and make that more accessible uh, then uh you know that's that's certainly something that can be overcome in the next 13 years until this proposed ban. Yeah, certainly. And, and, you know, even just besides the, the things that governments can do with the existing technologies, there's also so many innovations happening in the sector around, you know, uh, don't want to say this is going to be the, the solution that, that closes the gap, but 
automakers are putting solar panels on on roofs of, of vehicles now. Um, there are remote charging stations being developed that can operate off the grid so they can just be deployed at random. Battery swapping is taking off in China. It's taking off in or it's starting in Europe. So there are there are a lot of innovations and um, I can just imagine that the momentum of those innovations alongside government support is going to, is going to change the sector dramatically over the next 12 years, 13 years. Yeah. And that's nothing to say also of charging speeds being dramatically improved, presumably over the next 13 years as well. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's a great example too, uh, Ryan, uh, with charging speeds, you know, today, uh, you can now buy um, the Hyundai Ionic 5 and Kia EV6 that uh, will charge from 10 to 80% in 18 minutes uh, if you have a 350 kilowatt charger. And, you know, those those are going to also increase, you know, that those those speeds are going to get faster still in the next decade. So, yeah, yeah. I, I wonder if there's actually, uh, you know, uh, and a, a different angle to this too, uh, but has nothing to do with electrification, but more so with automation um, and the development of, of of business models, ride-hailing business models using robo-taxis, uh, enabling people to, to not need a car uh, in more situations than they do now. And this is something we looked at a while ago, but you know, theoretically by 2035, maybe you have more robo taxis on the road. People don't need a car as much. Maybe in that environment, the used car price value actually declines on behalf of that uh, trend. Not to yeah, I, I, internal combustion engines, but yeah. Yeah, I think that's a very valid point. Um, you know, there, there may well be um, some declining demand for those those used ICEs uh, by the mid twenty thirties, yeah, and, and also also I think the the impact of um, of, of local and, and national policy will, will also make it more painful to to, uh, to own a, an ICE vehicle. So the, the increased taxes and the restrictions on, on access uh, will just make it a, and, and potentially increased parking charges uh, will just make it a lot more inconvenient um, for, for owning a ICE. Yeah, that's. Yeah, definitely a more <laughs> practical way <clears throat> and predictable way, I think. Huh. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, um, let's uh, wrap it up for this week. And uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us. And we'll talk to you again in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.